Welcome to the Alternative Design Podcast. We provide an opportunity for creatives to rethink space and how it's designed by inviting unlikely perspectives to the conversation. Whether we're looking at living probiotics for buildings or exploring the first city to be constructed on Mars, we believe there's innovation to be found in the margins. I'm your host, Kaylin Reed, design futurist at Kimball International. Join us as we dive deeper than the mainstream conversations and find alternative ways to design for a better human experience. There's an entire people group known as the world's forgotten victims who are in desperate need of our help and we're only just starting to talk about it. While we race to reverse global emissions, we have to also consider that massive amounts of people will be forced to relocate because climate change will trigger them to find someplace safer to live. These climate change migrants are being popularly referred to as climate refugees. In this episode, we're talking to globally recognized humanitarian architect Shigeru Ban, chief engineer at Oceanics, Matteo Pietrovelli, and Gunars Plataeus, a senior fellow at the Sustainability Innovation Lab at the University of Colorado Boulder. We're going to discuss alternative design solutions that could offer the millions who will be in search of a new home, a place to belong. This is episode 14, Paper Sanctuaries. Iwani Tesiota wipes the rain from his face as he looks out the edge of his property where the broken seawall is the only thing separating the violent waves from his family home built on reclaimed land. The small island of Tarawa, one of the 33 islands that make up the Kiribati, and where Iwani has lived jobless for four years, barely peeks out the ocean at about 10 feet above sea level. This makes the Kiribati Islands subject to a host of climate change-related challenges. The main one being that it's sinking into the ocean. Iwani and his wife were lucky enough to obtain work visas in New Zealand and lived there for eight years, raising their three children, until his visa accidentally slipped. He applied to extend his visa, but if he's denied, Iwani and his family will have to move back to the Kiribati, where violence is on the rise safe drinking water is scarce, and the rising tides threaten to swallow their home. New Zealand government turned around and said, no way, you can go back because, first of all, you can farm in other places in your country. You're not being persecuted. And there were characterizations for a refugee. He did not fit that legal classification for a refugee. This is Gunnar's Plataeus, 
formerly of the World Bank and currently a senior fellow at the Sustainability Innovation Lab at Colorado. The first thing we need to understand is what is a climate refugee? This term is defined by many news articles and media publications as someone who's displaced from their home due to climate change. They've also been named the world's forgotten victims, probably because climate refugees don't legally exist. I guess one of the first things that has to be set in stone right at the outset is that there isn't such a thing as climate refugee, right? Because refugee has a very clear legal definition established by the UN back in the 1950s. And what that does is that it provides a person that is being persecuted in a country the ability to seek asylum. So that is a very important distinction. According to the United Nations, a refugee is someone who's unable or unwilling to return to their country of origin owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group, or political opinion. But while there isn't a legal definition or global policy currently in place to support climate refugees, the issue isn't going away. In fact, it's becoming a bigger problem. Yeah, a World Bank study just came out um, recently, and they essentially it says that by 2050, we are going to have 220 million people that are going to be uh, displaced by climate. According to a report by Oxfam in 2019, one person is displaced by climate every two seconds. And while the U.S. may not be sinking at the rapid rate of Kiribati, we have some climate trouble of our own. Last year, 2020, the U.S. had more than $21 billion disasters. Just think of that. The U.S. alone. And when you look at it, somehow the confluence of the meteorological systems, weather patterns, it sends in the U.S. But you have more than $21 billion um, disasters that cost over a billion dollars in, in you know, damages and so forth. If you're listening to this podcast, it's likely you encountered a natural disaster last year. And while at one time it may have seemed unlikely to be subjected to violent supercells in the South, flooding in California, devastating tornadoes in the Midwest, or a blizzard in Hawaii, it's certainly not now. We took home the unfortunate prize of having the world's highest number of natural disasters, 43 to be exact. But let's be clear, while climate-related disasters are happening close to home, it's the poorest and most marginalized countries that are taking the biggest hit. And maybe you're asking, what does this have to do with design? Well, we need a variety of design solutions if we're going to be the challenge of preparing spaces for those who are displaced by climate change. Yes, finding sustainable solutions to rapidly slash emissions is a must. But we're already enduring some of the consequences of climate change today. Massive amounts of people are needing a new place to call home, which begs the question, what makes a home? Or differently said, what makes a space a place? So then we look at, you know, what are the threats and why are people going to be migrating? The three main reasons are going to be it's water scarcity, lower crop productivity, and sea level rise and storm surge. Talking about New York, for example, sea level rise is happening and you're already seeing it. Over in, in Asia, you're seeing these events more and more happening and it's like a scary thing. Most often, those that are displaced due to climate change relocate internally before seeking refuge across the border. We have several great migrations already in the history books, including African-Americans moving from South to North, 
and New Englanders moving from East to West. I don't know about you, but I'm hearing a lot about Californians selling their homes and moving inland due to the growing concerns about climate change impacts. Change is already happening in our backyards. Some climate model projections predict that northern Midwestern states, particularly around the Great Lakes region, will be more temperate and livable, where southern states will struggle to stay cool amidst rising temperatures. You're thinking about shopping malls and things like that, but even location. From a real estate perspective, I always talk about its location, and it's going to continue to be location. It's okay, so now you're in, in this place and it makes like 104 degrees Fahrenheit on average. It's, eh, is that a location I want to be in? I don't think so. It's kind of like a joke, but it's not really. It's okay. You want to start buying uh, farmland in in northern Saskatchewan because uh, that's where you're going to have uh, better productivity. Okay, so let's get back to design. My brain is already buzzing with the implications of what this massive migration could mean. The first thing that naturally comes to mind is, where are we going to put everyone? One of the biggest concerns is going to be how to not tap out a city's available space and local resources. Ancient civilizations like Babylon and the Akkadian Empire didn't get a happy ending when they had this problem. So what can we do as designers to help prepare and allocate more resources for the cities who will eventually become population magnets? Well, I think for starters, aside from the obvious solution of moving building projects inland, it's using what we already have. Adaptive reuse projects are on the rise, and some people claim that the most sustainable buildings are the ones that are already built. But beyond that, I think we need to start planning for adaptability, much like we've been doing post-COVID, but on a much bigger scale. We need electricity grids, water infrastructure, and renewable resources like food to match the influx of people who will need these basic necessities. It's also interesting to consider the way we've completely changed how work is being done. So while some people will find relocation really hard, others will find no trouble packing up their laptops and working from a more habitable spot. But a lot of urban planners are saying the future is upward. I don't know if you ever saw, did you ever see that movie Fifth Element? I mean, you see these cities that are just vertical and they go up and up and up and up and up and up. And these guys are driving around. And, uh, Bruce Willis is a taxi driver and he's floating around different levels. And I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, it's like, you know, that's probably a reality. After the first denial from immigration to extend his work visa, Iwani appealed the decision and took it to the New Zealand High Court. After being denied twice, finally in September of 2015, he was deported to Kiribati. His native home is nothing like the home he had in New Zealand. His children got sick more frequently and became physically frail. There was never enough water collected from the rainwater tank, and the well was next to a graveyard making it unfit for drinking. And the seawall was now broken in three places. Yuani said in an interview with the BBC that he felt the same as someone fleeing from war. The sea is going to take over his land. If Yuani is our canary in the coal mine, we need to understand that displacement is not our only challenge when it comes to climate change, poverty, Magnification of inequities and conflict are also lurking at the door. In fact, many see climate change and conflict as a sort of domino effect where one precedes the other. Again, the best thing we can do for climate refugees is to reverse the catastrophic level of carbon emissions. But let's also be on the lookout for the creative solutions that will help us to adapt in the face of climate change disruption. 
today. We stop everything. It'll take 100 years for us to get to the point where it starts to abate. So we need to, first of all, we need to stop the CO2. And then second of all, in the meantime, we have to find ways to adapt. And we're going to have to adapt. On the other hand, thinking of adaptation, we go to the Netherlands and they're amazing. The Dutch are just so creative and they've done such amazing things with adapting to uh, sea level rise. They're, they see this coming and they're planning way ahead and they're already talking about floating cities and they already have prototypes of, of that sort of stuff. So we are capable of adapting and so forth. But adaptation is not enough. We actually need to be able to stop all of this and transform our economy from a carbon-based economy to something that is basically renewable. Perhaps like me, you really love being on the water, but the thought of a floating city makes you absolutely seasick. But this really fascinating solution is being proposed by a company called Oceanics, and they believe floating cities could offer a safe, long-term housing solution for people who are displaced by climate. Here's their chief engineer, Matteo Pietrobelli. The goal and the philosophy is that we believe that humanity can actually live in harmony with the life below water. And uh, at a certain point, it's not just anymore a question of uh, uh, one versus the other, but how you actually make sure that everything integrates in the proper way. So there are technologies that currently exist and that are able to help us to live on water, while nature continues to actually thrive under. So uh, Oceanics basically is trailblazing a new industry with uh, uh, blue technologies uh, that will meet humanity, shelter, energy, water, food, and waste needs without killing the marine environments. So for other Kevin Costner fans, if the first thing you're thinking of is water world, you would be mostly correct. Now, the issue is that approximately 90% of the largest global cities are actually vulnerable to rising sea levels. So coastal cities, they face unique challenges as you know they struggle first to meet demand for housing, for food, for energy and water and livelihoods. But also close to 50% of the people in the world actually live in coastal cities. So... As these numbers are fast growing, what happens is that consequently, this coastal city will actually expand inevitably onto the ocean through massive land reclamation. Land reclamation is a technique where you pour sand or soil material into the ocean to basically expand the coast. The idea here is to create more livable space, which you would think would be an excellent solution for climate refugees, except for one small problem. It actually permanently destroys millions of hectares uh, of the ocean and, of course, of the fragile marine ecosystems. And they will lose protective wetlands and mangroves, and they will leave them in a far more vulnerable state to the sea level rise, to the climate threats. Therefore, the, the approach to the urban coastal expansion uh, in terms of land reclamation is not suitable. And so in order to find a bold solution, we also need to take a bold step to transition to a more uh, resilient, yes, a more sustainable city, but that in a way that we actually face the catastrophic consequences for humanity and the planet. And floating cities are one of those solutions. So what do floating cities actually look like and how would it all work? So, first of all, the shape is a hexagon, right? And that's because the hexagonal shape, it requires the least amount of material to enclose a given volume. So it's like the bees, you know, uh, in the hives. 
it's basically the most efficient shape. You know, we, we didn't invent anything new. We're basically copying what nature has been giving us. And nature is the highest example of optimization and efficiency. Now, once you have this hexagon and you have six of them, you have a village. Then after you have one village, which is basically made of six neighborhoods, if you put six villages together, you end up on a city of a scale that is 10,000 people. And so starting from there, we can move along with the, the other parts, which are the juicy parts. We have a set of systems, and those systems are related to uh, water, to food, to energy, to habitat regeneration, to waste, to mobility. So it's very important that in order to develop and design a city that is actually uh, working on an on a urban level, not only sustainably, but is actually working seamlessly, it's very important to actually integrate those systems seamlessly in order to you know, have them working in the right way with the right amount of backups. And of course, um, in, in order to guarantee the most important thing, which is safety of the population that we're living on uh, these floating cities. These interconnected hexagon neighborhoods would feel a lot like any neighborhood you'd find on land. There'd be residential buildings, offices, entertainment venues, retail, and beautiful indoor-outdoor public spaces that will support connection and community building. But I know what you're thinking. How in the world are these things safe? Am I floating out to sea one day if I choose to live on one? Believe it or not, these floating cities are quite safe. Because we are actually perceiving these new developments of floating habitats as a plug-in of existing coastal cities, coastal cities by themselves already normally have um, a safe harbor. Now, the reason of those harbors is to reduce drastically the height of the waves. They're actually consistently lower of the ones that you would find uh, in the open sea. However, the way we will keep them in position, it will be done through what is called uh, mooring or anchorage systems. That basically has a connected GPS that will understand the standard location of where the, the floating habitat will need to be. There are certain parameters that will basically uh, allow the platforms and the habitats to continue to move, such as skyscraper moves as well. But accelerations and movements will be controlled uh, in a way that basically will make people inside comfortable, even with the, with the highest weight height. Uh, we don't want anybody to feel sick. So these safe harbors already offer a layer of protection for these floating cities, and advances in technology keep them stable, but not too stable that you feel sick. But one of the most interesting things about oceanics, aside from the net zero energy, fresh water autonomy, zero waste systems, and permaculture food supply, is the habitat regeneration. Oceanics is using a technology called BioRock that is the only marine construction material that grows, heals itself, and becomes stronger with age. It's also three times stronger than concrete. When we have habitat regeneration, we would be able to grow, for example, kelp or algaes. But the beauty of kelp is that they are actually carbon uh, sponges. They are super important from a CO2 perspective in the water that once we start to regenerate habitats and to grow kelps, not only we're able to recreate marine habitats where it wasn't there, but in having also kelps, we will be able to actually absorb uh, carbon. And once kelp is uh, basically dies, it dies and it goes to the bottom of the ocean. Basically, uh, carbon disappears. While this idea might seem pretty futuristic, 
The beauty of this solution is that it originates from centuries of innovations just like it. The Mayan, the Aztecs, even the Madan people we spoke about in episode five have all utilized this technology of floating architecture. And while Oceanics is relying on historic principles, particularly as it relates to building with the land, it's pioneering something the world hasn't seen yet. As of April, they've partnered with UN Habitat, the Ark Angles Group, or BIG, the Samsung Group, and the city of Busan in South Korea to embark on the first prototype of a resilient and sustainable floating city. What we're trying to do is to find as many coastal cities as possible interested in actually uh, deploying this. Of course, Busan would be at the forefront of this as they, we would be building the prototype over there. But as soon as the prototype would be there and it would be working, I am pretty sure we will already have other cities able to engage or in general to actually accept this. And so therefore, we would be already designing new cities or new floating habitats for other countries. In a last desperate attempt to save his family, Iwani appealed the multiple decisions to deny asylum in New Zealand by taking the matter to United Nations Human Rights Committee in 2015. He told the committee that the rising sea levels threatened his and his family's lives. With Tarawa becoming more and more crowded, there is increased violence and fewer freshwater resources. In this landmark judgment made in 2020, the committee ruled that the climate crisis could indeed, quote, expose individuals to a violation of their rights, end quote. This means that states will not be allowed to send refugees back to their home countries if displaced by the climate crisis. While climate refugee is still not a legal term defined by the UN, this is the start of a shift towards recognition. The committee also said that climate change induced harm can occur both through sudden onset events and slow onset processes. Both can trigger the need for individuals to cross borders to safety. However, in the case of Yuani, the committee ruled that the nation of Kiribati does have time to address the problem in the next 10 to 15 years. So it upheld the decision to deny asylum in New Zealand. While innovations like oceanics are great for communities that want to plan ahead, the reality is that many climate-related disasters are unforeseen and can leave many victims scrambling to find shelter. These sudden onset events often require temporary housing or shelters while relocation is made possible for those who are displaced. Pritzker Prize-winning architect Shigeru Ban has spent his career rejecting opportunities to construct high-profile architectural monuments and instead has been designing shelters for those who are displaced, most recently for those who are fleeing the war in Ukraine this year during the Russian invasion. End of 2019, there is a, a new organization created by President of EU, Mrs. Bandarayan, that's an organization called New European Bauhaus. The original Bauhaus was one of the most revolutionary art schools and influenced multiple modern design movements in architecture. This new European Bauhaus is a part of the European Union's Coronavirus Recovery Plan and aims to create a bridge between the two worlds of science and technology and art and culture. Part of this project included a high-level roundtable made up of interdisciplinary professions. They chose 14 members all over the Europe, including myself, because I have office in Paris. 
from different professions, including architects and others. One of the members is Ubert. He's a Polish architect. So immediately after the invasion, beginning of the, the, the end of February, I sent uh, all the material of PPS because I saw the news that the refugees are staying in the, the big space without any privacy. So I thought this PPS may help them. PPS, or Paper Partition System, was designed by Shigeru initially for Rwanda refugees in 1994, but has since been improving the design as he continues to jump into areas that have been struck by disaster. He felt that the Ukrainian refugees fleeing to Poland could benefit from such a design, so he reached out to Hubert Trammer, a fellow new European Bauhaus member and Polish architect. So we sent over the, the PPS to the Ukrainian architects. They installed them in the gymnasium in Lviv. And also we have other team members in Slovakia and other European cities. They are preparing the also PPS with us. So what exactly is the paper partition system and how does it get installed? It's very easy. It's a two different diameter of the paper tube, about two meter long. We just make a hole to put the smaller diameter into the, the larger diameter tube to make a frame. So four posts and the four beams, which can be connected to make larger, depending on the size of the families. And we just hang the fabric by a safety pin. So we can just, we need maybe three to five minutes to install one unit. Easily by anyone. Yep. Paper tubes, fabric, and some safety pins. Certainly, this design solution isn't as elaborate as a floating city. But before you dismiss this humble creation, listen to this. One of the experiences we had in one of the train stations in Poland, one of the lady refugees, as soon as she moved into this uh, space, she started crying. We understood that, that she was traveling with a lot of problems and uh, tensions, and uh, even she couldn't cry. But as soon as she got her own space, she started crying because I'm sure she felt comfortable and she released from the big tension. It's very difficult to stay in such a big space without privacy. So I think privacy is really most basic necessity. What Shigeru has effectively done is turn a space into a place. What do I mean by that? Well, if a space has four walls and a roof, then the shelter that the Ukrainian refugees were crowded in is a space. But a place is tied to purpose, to meaning, to growth, to belonging. And Shigeru did that with one of the most ubiquitous materials available, paper. By simply offering privacy and autonomy, only then did this refugee woman feel like she could process her emotions safely. As we continue to think about how to design spaces for those who are displaced, we have to think about the fact that Refugees are going to come with a lot of fear, trauma, and grief that will need to be worked through. What kind of place would you feel comfortable doing that in? I'm astounded because so often we think that it's the elaborate designs and the detailed flourishes that make the biggest impact on the human experience. But that's not always the case. The uh, beauty of the, the building and space, comfort of the space, has nothing to do with the cost of the material or the type of the material. Even inexpensive material, we can make a comfortable space and beautiful building. Also, the, the durability of the building and also the strength of the building has nothing to do with the strength of the material. For example, you must experience in many of the big cities in the world, many of the, the 
relatively new building can be destroyed by developer to make a new building in concrete. So if building was made to make money, they can be very temporary, even building is made of concrete. But even though the paper charts made in paper, if people loves it, this become permanent. Many of my temporary building become permanent as a result because people love it, that people take care of it. So as I said, the durability or strength of the, the building has nothing to do with the, the type of the, the material or strength of the material. While you let that sink into your brain for just a minute, here's a real-life example of what Shigeru is referring to. In 2011, a neo-Gothic church in Christchurch, New Zealand, was destroyed by an earthquake. Reverend Craig Dixon reached out to Shigeru to design something in its wake. Given the surprising strength and durability of cardboard, it, of course, is what he chose as one of the main building materials. Paper tubes come together to create a simple A-frame construction, complemented with stained glass and a polycarbonate roof. This temporary sanctuary is likely to stand for decades, and it's proof of how a temporary solution, like a shelter for climate refugees, could become a permanent structure, especially when it's been designed through the lens of placemaking. One of the projects I'm doing is in Tonga. In, you know, the, in the January, they had the, the volcano exposure, and the big tsunami destroyed many of the villages in Tonga. So I sent over some tent structure, but now it's the time to rebuild the houses. However, in Tonga, there is no building material available. Everything has to be imported. So I had the idea to make a very inexpensive, easy house system using a foam core with some grass fiber. It's not building material. It's just a, a insulation material to be reinforced locally in, in Tonga. I'm now planning to work with the local people to make a new building system. I think uh, you know, everybody has to be interested in uh, developing new system, depending on different conditions. Uh, condition is very different. Just like the cardboard cathedral offered sanctuary for Christchurch, New Zealand, not so unlike the kind of sanctuary Yuani Tesioda spent years begging for, we as a design community must extend our hands to offer sanctuary for those who are displaced by exploring both short and long-term solutions. Climate refugees are here. They need our help. And we have the tools to turn spaces into the kind of places that can welcome them to a new home. Thanks so much to Gunars, Mateo, and Shigeru for being our guests on this month's episode. Check out our show notes for links and more information on Oceanics and donating to Shigeru Band's refugee shelter efforts in Ukraine and more. This podcast is brought to you by Kimball International. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.